Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 24 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 14th of July, and I'm in France, and it's Bastille Day. And Leon, this week we're talking to Dr. Daniel Richards, isn't it? That's right. Dr. Daniel Richards is going to be discussing with us his research showing investors are likely to trade more frequently and thereby degrade their returns. And that's quite important because of uh, what's happening in the stock market at the moment. That's true. And of course, day traders are a big influence in that market. That's right, indeed. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kakoulis, and he's going to be talking to us all about the two big trends now hitting the stock market. Yeah, one of them would be uh, Donald Trump, I would guess, and the chance that he's going to sack uh, Janet Yellen. Well, there's that, but there's also the issue of Donald Trump Jr., and that has really rattled the markets. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, so it's kind of a double whammy going on over there about that. That's right. But first of all, let's have a chat with Dr. Daniel Richards. Daniel Richards, tell us about the research you've done into trading. Uh, well, the research I've done into trading is looking essentially at retail investors, how much they buy, how much they sell, how frequently they are trading in the market. And my research has shown that, hey, there's a whole lot of people who don't trade much, but there's a small proportion of people that trade frequently, very frequently. And what has that shown, though? Well, if you look at the top 10% of people who are trading, investors, um, they're trading about 69 times a year. If you look at the bottom 80% of investors in trading, they're only trading six times a year, so once every two months. Um, and those people in the top part I'm talking about uh, who are trading uber frequently, well, they put their returns at risk. Buying and selling costs money. There's transactions costs involved with both buying stocks, selling stocks, but there's also a difference between the buy price and the sell price. When those get added up, trading frequently reduces returns. So the ones who trade frequently get lower returns than the ones who might trade once or twice a year. Well, they're at risk of doing that. On average, those who trade frequently get lower returns than those who don't. Is there a particular demographic for this group? Well, trying to characterise who they are was the focus of our research. Uh, specifically, we looked at um, gender um, and also age. And interestingly, we found that male investors tend to trade more frequently than female. And uh, younger investors, they also trade you know, a lot more frequently than older investors. That would suggest, though, wouldn't it, that younger investors, because they're younger, are probably using it to learn about the market? Well, that's right. I mean, there's some other characteristics of the traders that suggest they're learning. So firstly, there's uh, investors who are seeking advice tend to trade more. Uh, investors who use stop losses tend to trade more. And also um, investors who are trading on the internet tend to trade more. Now, stop losses are basically when your stock starts tanking, you sell automatically. Is that right? That's right. So you'll place like a form of insurance that says that I bought at this price. If it goes down by a certain amount, then the trade will happen automatically. I won't have to go in and execute it myself. Um, and it's a form of uh, basically protecting your portfolio um, through exiting the market when things go wrong. Many, many shares in Australia, I think there's probably a shortage of shares because of the superannuation market. How much of the stock in Australia and indeed elsewhere is out of the field that you're in? You know, in other words, are people playing around with small sector of the market? Is that an effect that's having? Okay, so, well, my data looked mainly at uh, people in the UK. So people were trading over in the UK. Uh, and there tends to be people trading within the UK environment. They go to those stocks that they're most familiar with. Those are the ones that they tend to be buying and selling, thinking they have more information about. 
So, so these are the stocks, say, in the FTSE 100. Yeah, so the FTSE 100, the FTSE 250, those types of indices. There is some diversification overseas, so they will go over and buy stocks overseas, but generally the, the, the stocks that are traded mostly tend to be those ones they're most familiar with. Does that tend to distort the stock price versus the actual value of the company? It's hard to say from our research about that. Um, I guess when you're looking at these stocks, say the the, the blue chip stocks, the, the frequently traded stocks, um, their prices tend to move with new information that gets released. It's not necessarily based on what investors kind of believe and stuff. There's a lot of people have many positions in these stocks. Now, what's interesting with a lot of this frequent trading is a lot of it occurs over the internet and through call centres. What are the implications there? Well, um, one of the things we were looking at was when the internet trading first started, all these people started moving into that environment and trading frequently. So our research wanted to look at, well, is that still occurring? Are people trading more if they're going via the internet? What we found was that, yes, people trading on the internet trade more, but also people trading via the telephone, ringing up a call centre, also traded more. And so what we take is that frequent traders will find any medium possible to trade in order to do so. They won't be limited by what they can and cannot trade via. So then is there a lot of this trading knee-jerk rather than knowledge? Well, I mean, that's an interesting uh comment knee-jerk. Um, I, I guess some of the basis of uh, trading frequency or the, the theory put out there is that investors are overconfident. They're too confident of their abilities. And so when we look at, you know, going back to our research, we find that male investors tend to trade more, suggesting that overconfidence is related to that. And also younger investors tend to trade more. So that would also suggest that. Perhaps one of the things that older investors have learned is not to trade frequently. They've learned from their mistakes, from going into the market and being too active, that it reduces their returns. What are the implications here from your research for day traders? And I realise that your research wasn't necessarily looking at day traders, but day traders would be quite relevant here. Well, I mean, day traders are essentially trying to buy and sell within a day, so they close off their positions at the end of the night. Those types of traders need to be very kind of focused on how much it costs them to enter and how much it costs them to exit a market, have a clear strategy on how much they expect to make in a return before they trade. Trading for the sake of it is a sure way of a day traders to reduce you know, their returns at the end of the day. Um, trading when you have a good intuition as to I'm going to make a sizable gain to cover my transaction costs should be the basis of those decisions. So I take it that you're better to sit on a good stock and accept the dividends rather than look for a capital gain. Well, I mean, one of the things that we have in Australia here is that if you wait for a long time, you sit and you hold for 12 months, after 12 months, you can get a 50% reduction on your capital gains tax as an individual. Um, so that tax is really there to incentivize people to take a buy and hold and strategy. Our research would also suggest that taking a buy and hold strategy is a, is a good approach and that basically waiting for a long time until you trade will show you more returns than otherwise. This is very interesting because it would imply there's a certain proportion, albeit maybe 10% of the population, that is vulnerable when there is a market correction. If you talk about a market correction, you talk about the market movement. Market movement. Yeah, yeah, the market movement going down. Well, I mean, the active traders would try to sell in that position, whereas an inactive trader might try to hold and, and, and ride out. Um, one of the last things you want to do is if you decide to, to, to sell and exit a position that you've taken is you've got to have good logical reasons for it. Um, are you trading just because you're scared of the market and what's happening? Or are you trading because of a reason that you have to sell that stock? Are there policy implications for this to protect investors? 
Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the outcomes of our research is that only uh, 10% of the population of investors are trading really, really frequently. So policymakers have got a great opportunity just to correct the behaviour of the few um, and see a big change in the uh, performance of investors as a whole. The other kind of big implication, I believe, from this is that uh, these investors who are trading frequently are doing so to learn. Perhaps one of the things they should learn is that trading frequently decreases their returns. Who would actually carry out these protections? Would it be ASIC? Would it be the ASX? I think if you leave this to the brokerage firms or the people that are allowing investors to trade, it's not going to happen. Those brokerage firms tend to make money from people trading, so active trading would be almost encouraged by them. However, ASIC or looking at uh, the ASX, those types of institutions, uh, they've got a duty to um, help out individual investors make the best decisions for their returns. Now, lately, there's been a lot of talk about shorting. How risky is that? Okay, Uh, so a person who's shorting is they're basically trying to say that they're going to make money on the market going down. And the fundamental behind that is they're trying to time the market. They're trying to say, now is the right time that the market's going to turn. It's incredibly hard for people to time the market. Um, Professional investors struggle with it. If you're talking about a retail investor who has a day job, nine to five, and they're just trading in their spare time, it's very, very difficult. The odds are stacked against you finding an accurate way to be able to time the market and move with it um, successfully. Tends to be dangerous then. Tends to be dangerous. Depends on how much you put at stock um, and tends to be how leveraged you are, how much you've borrowed um, in order to invest. So there's a lot of risk out there for these investors. Uh, There is some risk for investors. Um, Risk is also related to return. So sometimes uh, if something is a higher risk of stock that you're going into, then you can expect greater returns. However, what I would suggest is that it takes time to get that return. So taking a strategy on the long-term perspective um, would be the secret to um, experiencing those returns. Daniel Richards, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, Leon, I thought that was very interesting. You know, you think the guys are trading on shares are going to do pretty well most of the time, but... uh, it's quite clear that people who are trading don't really follow things properly, perhaps. Is that what we can draw from it? Well, I think his research would be particularly pertinent to day traders, and that is really important. Yeah, and, and they're a big influence, particularly guys who are using uh, computer algorithms and things like that. That's right, indeed. And then uh, Stephen Kukoulos with his wisdom. Stephen Kukoulos, uh, there's been a bond sell-off because of global market concerns about central bank policies. What's your view about this? Yes, it's been a marked turn in yields. We've noticed that some of the extraordinarily low-yielding countries, Germany, for example, and those in Europe, but also Canada and the UK, have had yields backing up to their highest level in roughly 12 to 18 months. And it's based on, frankly, better news in those economies, that there's signs that At long last, there's a little bit of traction coming through in terms of uh, growth. The unemployment rate in each of those areas is continuing to fall. Look, the UK is probably a little bit different because of the political uncertainty and Brexit issues. But in Canada, in the European Central Bank in Europe, in the US, there's this feeling that after, you know, many, many years of really moderate or sluggish economic growth, inflation being very low, bond yields being driven lower by those fundamentals, plus the fact that we had, up until the last little while, the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, all buying bonds and pushing yields lower, that they're going to be ending that soon. And of course, uh, bond markets are very quick to react to that fresh news. And that news is one of the reasons why we're getting this back up in bond yields. 
So uh, there's been a big bond sell-off. How will this affect markets? Well, this is the interesting thing because in very simple terms, now this is a simplification, I must acknowledge that, but if you're an investor, if you're a big fund manager sitting well anywhere in the world and you've got a choice between a very low-risk or no-risk bond investment getting a particular yield or perhaps some higher risk by investing money in the stock market, if the yield on government bonds, the safe haven of government bonds starts to increase, if we do get yields continuing to move higher over the course of the next few months or let alone the next few years, then all of a sudden as an investor who's trying to you know, lock in a, a steady but safe return for your clients, you're going to be more inclined to put the money into the higher yielding but relatively safe haven of, of government bonds and you'll take it out of the stock market. So there's that trade-off if you like and in fact you know, it's fairly clear that over the last uh, three or four or five years, the US stock market's been booming. Similarly, in European and some of the Asian stock markets have been booming based on low low interest rates that people are saying, well, if I'm getting basically zero interest by buying government bonds, I'll put the money into stocks, I'll take that chance. But if that starts to reverse, and Leon, is we're in the early stages of that starting to reverse, probably, perhaps, that you'll get the uh, stock market taking a bit of a hit as people just simply reallocate funds out of the slightly higher risky stock market and put it into the lower risk but higher yielding bond market. That's the trade-off that I think we're going to be looking for. So what we're looking at potentially is the stock market heading for a correction of some sort. Yes. And again, it's interesting with you. Now, I know a daily move in a, in a market probably doesn't amount to much. You know, we've all been caught out looking at one day's moves and then extrapolating that for many a long day. But in this turning point, if we're at this point of inflection on bond yields and uh, stock prices and the like, I have noticed that on some of the days when we've had a sizable backup in bond yields, when we've had, you know, five to ten basis points, which in a sense doesn't sound much, but it actually is for a bond investor, when we've had that backup in, in yields, we've also had the stock market falling, that we've been seeing perhaps investors try to anticipate this turning point that we were just talking about. So, yes, it'll be interesting to see. And, and of course, the higher the bond yields go, the more likely it is that we're to see uh, the stock market fall in a sort of a similar amount. So it's, that trade-off is, is hugely interesting right now. Well, some might say that's probably not too bad and that might be overdue because uh, equities have been way overvalued, haven't they? Oh, they've been booming. Again, if you take the very low point, I guess that was at the depths of the global crisis in 2008 or nine, from memory, U.S. stock prices have increased by about 150% from that very low point that we saw um, you know, when we thought the world was coming to an end or the financial markets were coming to an end. And that's a stunning, stunning increase. Um, we don't often get that sort of uh, rate of increase occurring. The other thing to think about, and I don't know if anyone's seriously thinking that the U.S. is in recession, and I don't even, I'm a bit nervous even bringing up the topic of a U.S. recession, but the current expansion in the U.S. economy is now into its eighth year. So it's been uh, it's now eight years since the recession ended in the US. History shows us that since World War II, the average duration of economic expansions is about seven to eight years. On average, every seven to eight years we have a recession. So if that statistical probability holds, we're, goodness me, we might be due for a recession. But I can, as I said, I'm putting that out there as just something. Maybe we're going to have a period of US economic growth that goes you know, well beyond a decade. But nonetheless, people are starting to think, well, the Fed's hiking rates, Bond yields are backing up. We've got a, well, potentially some political turmoil occurring in the US administration and all these things, you know, just might be the catalyst for something less uh, less good for the economy. 
Well, the other issue too is uh, notice stock markets have responded to the news of Donald Trump Jr. meeting with a Russian lawyer who had information about Hillary Clinton. And uh, the stock market has responded to that because that puts Donald Trump Jr. very close to collusion and possibly breaking the law. Yes. Now, I don't know the legal intricacies, um, but other than it, it, it smells like a rat. Uh, it, it doesn't look good. And from some of the commentary that's coming out now as this revelation continues to unfold and more information about these, what do we call it, liaisons uh, during the election campaign last year in the US, it doesn't look good. And there's clearly something that's not quite right there. And, and as we know, and history shows us that when you get political turmoil, political upheavals at the very top of government. And, you know, goodness knows where Donald Trump Jr.'s tentacles go, if you know what I mean, on this particular issue. But it's it's got to be a very serious matter. If it becomes even more serious and there's a distraction for the US administration that some of the policies that Trump's talking about that the markets actually like, things like the company tax cuts that are there, if those things get put on the back burner because of this political turmoil, then all of a sudden you can see not only the political instability causing some market nervousness, but the you know, the hard policy consequences of this change also causing some nervousness. So it's one of those things where, you know, I think when the news just popped up in the middle of the night uh, last night, uh, the Dow fell about 100 points. Now, that's roughly you know, half a percent. So in a sense, it's yeah, not catastrophic, but it just goes to show how fickle the markets are on, on even political news, not just economic news. Well, uh, I noticed there was an interview with uh, Dan Ivasin, uh, who's the Chief Investment Officer at PIMCO on Bloomberg, and he said that the controversies mean that Donald Trump's plans for health care reform, tax cuts and fiscal stimulus are less likely to win approval now before the 2018 midterm elections. Well, if that's the case, then, as we were just noting, that that's one of the key points that's underpinned the uh, stock market optimism and even business and consumer optimism in the US, that some of these, what do we call them, stimulatory policies or pro-growth policies would actually be delivered. So it's actually a curious uh, risk, I suppose, you could see to the economy that, again, if the Congress is thinking, oh, goodness me, we can't vote for this while the administration's going through these investigations and probes or whatever you want to call them, then, of course, that undermines some of the good news that was out there on the US economy. And um, it does have the potential to really you know, upset the apple cart in terms of you know, what's been a run of quite good news. You look at the recent news in the US economy, uh, including just the jobs numbers last week, they're pretty good. Jobs are still growing. Unemployment is still below 4.5%. You know, it's a fairly decent expansion that's going on. And, of course, uh, many people think that it might be the Fed that took away the punch bowl uh, with interest rate hikes. But, goodness, it could well be this political turmoil that also diverts attention away and undermines confidence, undermines the bottom line of economic growth. So, in summary, Stephen Coolis, one could say that with the situation with the bond yields and with the political turmoil going on in the U.S., the markets could be heading for a correction. Look, on balance, you'd think so, yes. And particularly if the Fed does follow through with the rate hike, particularly if we do get more revelations about the uh, political controversies, the liaison with the Russians, uh, and if that spills over into a political bum fight in the US, 
uh, let alone the data is sort of hinting that perhaps inflation is going up, not down. The stock market could well be in for a very choppy time with most of the choppiness to the downside. Steve Kukoulis, as always, it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Leon. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, Stephen Koulis is saying the share market is heading for a major correction because of two issues. One is the bond sell-off and the other is the political upheaval going on in the United States. Yeah, and the politics in, down in Canberra not helping either. No, but uh, on the other hand, as we discussed, uh, the share market is very heavily valued at the moment. Yeah, it's all a bit risky. And then on top of that, you've got the housing uh, price issues to uh, think about as well. That's right. So now, the news, Leon, what have you got in the bin this week? Well, Gary, global markets were rocked this week by Donald Trump Jr.'s decision to release emails of a meeting he had with a Russian lawyer. That meeting was described as having potentially damaging information on Hillary Clinton during last year's presidential campaign. And the market really responded. The S&P 500 dropped 0.6% on the news. The Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 0.2%. And the CBOE Volatility Index, or VIC, spiked more than 9%. Now, Dan Everson... Chief Investment Officer of Pacific Investment Management Co., which looks after about $1.5 trillion in mostly fixed income assets, said the growing controversies mean that US President Trump's plans for health care overhaul, tax cuts and fiscal stimulus are less likely to win approval before the 2018 midterm elections. And he said the developments mean the US economy will grow slower than the Trump administration's projections of 3%. And that as we discussed with Stephen Koulis, will affect global markets. Yep, and there's also the issue that um, what's happening is it's really much deeper and more dangerous and grubby that because Trump has given his children great political and financial power, and I think they're showing more loyalty to their father than to the American people, and that could be very dangerous. That's right. Well, they have been described as princes, but then again, I think... uh, Prince Harry and Prince William have shown uh, more forbearance than them. <laughs> yeah, I think it's unfair to princes, frankly. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Now, speculation is running high that Donald Trump is unlikely to nominate Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen for a second term next year and that he will replace her with his top economic advisor and National Economic Council Chair, Gary Kahn. Now, Politico has cited sources in the White House, the Treasury Department and on Capitol Hill saying that if Con wants a job, it's his. Now, Con is the former COO at Goldman Sachs. He's now working to spearhead the White House's efforts on tax reforms. And he'll be the first non-economist to take the top job since the 1970s. Now, Janet Yellen, of course, took over from Ben Bernanke as Fed Chair in February 2014 when the US economy was still recovering from the 2008 financial crisis. Her main focus has been on growth in jobs and wages and a broad recovery in US household wealth. And during the campaign last year, Mr Trump accused Janet Yellen of keeping interest rates low for political reasons and had flagged replacing her as Fed chair because she's not a Republican Party member. And it's since told the Wall Street Journal that he respected her. But all of that could change. Yeah, and of course, you know, the Fed's supposed to be non-party and accusing her of a Republican siding is, is pretty bad stuff. That's right. That's right. Now to Australia, and you have a division between what's happening out in the community 
and what's happening in the business world, Gary. For a start, Australian consumer confidence has fallen again, slipping 1.3% last week, following a 2.4% rise the previous week. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index showed that people had mixed feelings about the state of the economy. Households' views around current financial conditions continued to climb last week, rising 1.4% after a 3.8% rise previously, but consumers were less optimistic about future financial conditions. That sub-index fell 0.8% last week, entirely underwinding its previous rise, and views around future economic conditions remain under its long-term average. Also, the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment rose 0.4% to 96.6% in July, which is slightly up on the 96.2% in June. But the issue, Gary, is that it's the eighth consecutive month where the index is printed below 100, and that indicates pessimists are still outnumbering optimists. People are not that optimistic about their economic prospects, Gary. No, and it looks as though the pessimists are gaining further traction all the time. It's, it's, it is getting worse. On the other hand, Gary, uh, Australian business conditions surged in June, according to the National Australia Bank's latest business survey, and that shows a difference between the business world and the community world. The survey showed business conditions hit another multi-year high, returning back to around pre-global financial crisis levels. The NAB survey showed business conditions index rose four points to 15 index points, which is well above a long-run average of five points. On the other hand, business confidence rose only slightly last month, edging up only one point to nine points. But despite confidence being less buoyant than business conditions, it's held up above long-run average levels. Yeah, so that's good, but you've still got to look at the effect on the community and what effect that has on the politics as well. Indeed. So there's a division between the community and the business world, and that's something to watch out for. Now, Australian home loans returned to growth with the latest Australian Bureau of Statistics data showing they rose 1% in May. That's the first rise in four months. While the growth is up from a drop of 1.9% in April, it's still come in below the medium forecast, which had economists polled by Reuters tipping a rise of 1.5%. Loans to property investors continued to shrink. The ABS figures showed the value of loans for investment housing fell 1.4% from April, a slowdown in the rate of decline, which saw investors' loans falling 2.5% the month before. And this reflected a combination of additional macroprudential measures, out-of-cycle rate hikes aimed at investors and various government measures. Now, the loan market for home buyers and property prices has been a crucial issue, as you know, Gary, for banks, regulators and politicians, with Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe warning that record household debt is posing a major risk to Australia's economic outlook. Absolutely. It's huge. When you put it against the national debt, it starts to look very, very daunting. It does. Now, on energy and uh, wholesale power prices will continue to rise unless the government implements the Finkel Review's clean energy target according to a new analysis. A report from Melbourne-based carbon consultancy Reputex found that a clean energy target would reduce wholesale electricity prices from around $100 per megawatt hour to between $40 to $60 per megawatt hour over the next decade. And the report, under the headline, It's the Economic Stupid, said without a clean energy target, Prices would continue to rise to more than 100% per megawatt hour by 2030, mostly because of a heavy reliance on gas-fired power with high fuel prices. And the report says baseload-only power, irrespective of its emissions intensity, is just too inflexible to compete in Australia's future electricity systems. 
On the other hand, it says power from renewable sources is cheaper. Now, this report, Gary, is politically significant because the Turnbull government has left open the possibility of taxpayer investment in next-generation coal-fired power, such as high-energy, low-emissions coal plants. But the Reputix report says these sorts of coal facilities will not play a role unless there's a case of major government intervention. Now, of course, as we remember, the coalition adopted 49 of the 50 recommendations by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, but the clean energy target was the most contentious one. It was not adopted following a revolt in the party room, and apparently it's still under consideration. We'll continue to be analysing consultation with stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, and the basics of it, not only apart from uh, ecology, is that coal is now much more expensive than renewables. And I think the key to it all is the installation of batteries of the size that uh, South Australia is undertaking. That's right. Well, as that uh, Repitex report says, it's the economics, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, the corporate regulator says it will appeal to the Australian Competition Tribunal's decision to approve horse race betting company Tabcor buying lottery company tax for $11 billion. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission says it's taken action because a tribunal's ruling, it says, could change the competition rules for future deals. Now, the ACCC is alleging the tribunal made three reviewable errors. It's therefore seeking clarification of these three points of law, which are central to the tribunal's assessment of TAPCOR's proposed acquisition of TATS. Now, the merger proposal had originally gone to the ACCC, which had published its concerns about the proposed deals, but it made no ruling. Now, its preliminary view was that the proposed merger was likely to substantially lessen competition in the supply of monitoring and other services to pokies in Queensland. So what TAPCOR did was it took the unusual step of bypassing the ACCC and took it to the Federal Court's Australian Competition Tribunal, which approved the merger on June the 30th after a 14-day hearing laying down only one condition, that TAPCOR divests its Queensland pokies monitoring business, Odyssey Gaming Services, which had already been flagged, with Tasmania-based federal groups set to acquire it once the merger was in place. Now, the ACCC questioned the tribunal's reasoning that the proposed merger could only be detrimental if there was a substantial lessening of competition when the tribunal, it said in the past, had considered the detriment constituted by any lessening of competition. And it said in considering whether the merger was likely to cause detriment, it said the tribunal had failed to compare the likely future state of competition both with and without the merger. And it said the tribunal also erred in the weight it gave to benefits such as cost savings and revenue synergies, which could be retained by TAPCOR and not shared with consumers more broadly. So that's a really hot, hotting up as an issue. Yeah, it really is. And I think Rod Simons at the ACCC is going to push it hard because it, to some extent, or more than some extent, undermines the ACCC's authority. I think so too, yes. Now, the National Broadband Network has reached a major milestone, Gary. It says that one in two Australians can now connect to the network, and that means a rollout of Australia's NBN is now past its halfway point. NBN says it means more than 5.7 million homes and businesses now have access to it with 100,000 properties added to the footprint each week. On the other hand, it means a similar amount of homes and businesses don't have it yet. And the project has also been dogged with reports of dropouts, long connection times and complaints about speed. And that's in addition to concerns that NBN's rollout of fibre to the node has been well behind schedule and has been much more expensive to deliver than was originally hoped. 
Now, of course, we remember the MBN project began under the Rudd Labor government in 2007. It aimed to reach 98% of Australian premises by June 2021, and the coalition made wholesale controversial changes to the rollout when it took office. So that's an important milestone, Gary. Yeah, it is, but of course it's still very expensive and uh, we can actually thank Tony Abbott for that because he wanted to be different from Labor and so we have what I would suggest and a lot of technical people would suggest is an inferior network, whatever we do. Well, yeah, so let's see what we end up with. Now, final story, Gary, is that Metcash, the operator of independent supermarket chain IGA, has appointed former British supermarket giant Tesco executive Jeff Adams as its new chief executive officer. Now, Mr Adams will succeed Ian Maurice, who'd notified the board of his plans to retire in 2018 after five years in the role. Now, US-born Mr Adams has a long background of experience in the retail industry for the food and grocery hardware and liquor wholesaler battling Coles and Woolworths, which are investing heavily in price and service as Aldi eats in the market share of supermarket incumbents. And over the last 20 years, he's worked in the most competitive retail markets in the world. He's been CEO of Tesco Kipper in Turkey, CEO of Tesco Lotus in Thailand. He's been director of Tesco Express in the UK and been retail operations director of Fresh and Easy in the US. So it means that Metcash has called in a troubleshooter. Yeah, and very much as indeed Coles did way back and uh, Woolies, I think, has a similar sort of an executive. It's on for young and old, isn't it? That's right. Now, that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we're talking to uh, Dominic Pellegrino, who's the director of Value My Business, and Professor Cosmas Smyrnius from RMIT's School of Management. That should be very interesting, particularly the School of Management, I would have thought. That's right. And uh, Value My Business is a really interesting business to talk about. And that's it for this week. Gary, and so in the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we look forward to talking to you next week.